0: Forget. Come with us and don't no, no, not the movie you need.
1: Welcome, listeners, to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemispherical film review podcast, with me, Dan, finding spiders the size of
0: my hand everywhere in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, finding nothing poisonous and just cute, fluffy puppies in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) In this podcast,
1: we discuss films of the fantastical nature, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because a collection of serial killer masks alien figurines and full-size replicas of broadswords are sure to impress any date you bring home. (laughs) Conrad, how are you today? I am
0: very well. How are you? Very well, very well. Been up too much this week? Uh, No, I've been trying to make good on my promise to watch Marvel movies. So far, I've got three down. Uh, What is it? 18 more to go.
1: (laughs) I do have to say I did I did watch Endgame uh recently and it's uh, it does live up to the eventual mm. uh, build up of all the Marvel movies so it's a, it's a good conclusion so you have something to look okay. forward to after your 17 more movies <laughs> (laughs) Yes How about you? What have you been up to? I did watch a really cool movie on Netflix recently Uh, It's called Cargo I don't know whether you've seen it No It's an Australian film But the lead in it is Martin Freeman Who was not Australian He's Mm. British Um, (laughs) It's actually a really great zombie film But it's almost an anti-zombie film uh, and the fact you don't really see that many zombies in it. Um, so it's a lot more about survival and uh, yeah, it's a great, great film. So you should check it out. It's called Cargo. Ooh, will do. So anything in the
0: mailbag, Conrad? We've got loads of mail in the mailbag. Oh. Very active fans out there this week. So Neil Davis on Facebook said about Dead Calm. After I posted a picture of Billy Zane looking all sweaty, he said, given some of the rather fetching woolly tops he wore in Twin Peaks a couple of years before this film, you could say that Mr. Zane's performance technique went from one kind of sweater acting to another. I'll get my coat. (laughs) I think I replied to that and I said something like standing ovation. (laughs) Yeah. Love a good pun. Yeah, Yeah, I, I liked that one. And I'd completely forgotten that Billy Zane was in Twin Peaks. I can't remember which character he played at all. So Mm, thanks mm. for reminding me. We also heard from our new superfan, Chad Rommel, on disturbing behaviour. He said he saw this film on DVD, mostly because of the director. He was a huge X-Files fan. And the most disturbing thing about it was that it wasn't all that disturbing. Uh, yes. <laughs> Which I think, same conclusion we reached, I think. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> we also heard from Jeff Hort on the never ending story video essay that I posted Ooh. on our YouTube channel. If you haven't seen that, check it out. Amazing by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It came out well. The best part was the random trivia though, obviously. Oh no. <laughs> I think that 99% of the other part of the <laughs> video essay was the best part. <laughs> well, it's going down well on YouTube. So if you haven't watched it out there, check it out. And Jeff Hort said, This was so good. Your deep dive into The never ending Story was so thorough and mindful. I actually just bought the German soundtrack on vinyl because of this episode. Thank you. So, oh, wow. That's great. I wonder if we get a commission on that. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll be in touch. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to it on vinyl, I think, is particularly appropriate for 80s nostalgia. Mm. And finally, from Honey Shine Hattie on Instagram, she asked, is it possible to get your podcasts on Spotify? And the answer is yes. As of this week, (laughs) we are now live on Spotify. So please tune in to us there if that's your preferred podcasting platform. We're moving on up in the world. Mmm, one platform at a time. So I guess we should go to the movie Oubliette and pull out a film to talk about today. Mmm, I shall do that.
1: OK, just opening it up now. What is this, a wall of monsters?
0: Uh, I guess I'll put my hand in here. Gosh, they're, they're advancing very
1: quickly. Oh, no, I'm going to be quick.
0: Oh, reality is not what it used to be.
1: Ah, <sighs> OK. Today, I have in my hand, In the Mouth of Madness, Mm. directed by John Carpenter. It's a 1995, so still in the 90s, film written by Michael DeLuca, uh, who also wrote for some of the episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, the TV series, which I didn't know existed. Oh, wow. You're lucky. <laughs> as well as Freddy's Dead, the sixth instalment of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. This film stars Sam Neill as John Trent, Julie Carmen as Linda Stiles, Jürgen Prochnow as Sutter Kane. Uh, David Warner as Dr. Wren, John Glover as Saperstein, and Charlton Heston as Jackson Harglow. Mm. Yeah, I was surprised to see him in this as well. (laughs) Uh, The synopsis of this film centres on freelance insurance investigator John Trent, who was hired to look into the disappearance of highly acclaimed horror novelist Sutter Kane. Teaming up with Sacha Kane's editor, the self assured Linda Stiles, John discovers Kane's stories are much more than just mere fiction. Instead, there are cosmic intentions involving a forgotten town, Hobbs End, a sinister Byzantine church, townspeople unable to escape their written fates, and of course, tentacled grotesque creatures from the beyond. Ooh. Lovecraft, eat your heart out. Mm. Has John uncovered a gateway to hell, or is he staring into the mouth of madness? Find out after the break. Ooh.
0: Welcome back listeners, we're here to discuss John Carpenter's 1994 Lovecraftian horror film In the Mouth of Madness starring none other than New Zealand's own Sam Neill. Yeah, I I just wanted to to start off by apologising
1: because previously we have covered a Sam Neill film and I referred to him as an Australian actor (gasps) and he is not... I betrayed my country. He is a New Zealander. He apparently currently resides in Queenstown of New Zealand. And he grew up in Christchurch. But he was actually born in Ireland. So uh, it just confuses things even more. I always thought he was an Australian actor because he's just in so many Australian films. And for a while he was in this Australian lamb ad. So I would see him on TV like every night (laughs) advertising lamb
0: (laughs) so yeah you can understand my confusion (laughs) yeah so back to the film dan you had seen this before yes uh, a number of years ago but um fairly recently yeah same here and actually i just bought the new scream factory special edition so i could revisit it again and this was the occasion (laughs) yes (laughs) So I guess the first thing to talk about is the fact that this is very much a Lovecraftian horror film, and I suppose it might be handy if we define what that is. Um, So Lovecraft tends to combine physics, science fiction, and the occult. He tends to go for atmosphere over plot. His stories tend to be very portentous, and rather than having a boogeyman or a slasher or a monster or something like that he focuses on unknowable demonic forces glimpsed as tentacles and primordial slime and corrupted human simulacra so no actual demons tend to show up and go boo and he tends to find the demonic in the mundane so rather than the gothic style of writing, which focuses on castles at night and crypts and so on, he would tend to find uh, horror in everyday objects. So uh, it seems particularly fitting that in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, the agent of doom isn't some wizard with a special spell book or something. It's a pulp horror novelist called Sutter Kane, played by Jürgen Prochnow or Proshna, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. The star of Das Boot is great. So yeah, it's a, it's a different style of horror.
1: Yeah, so this is also referred to as a cosmic horror, which is a, mm. a genre I, I didn't know I was, I was aware of, but I do realise that I love that genre because a lot of my favourite horror films are cosmic horror. And in cosmic horror, they often have, as you said, a creature or an entity that doesn't really have a form, it's just an amalgam of just parts and you you can't really describe it. And in a lot of his works, apparently, uh, the creatures or the entities are just indescribable. And Mm. it's often quite hard to adapt that into film because obviously film is a visual medium and it's hard to (laughs) create something that's indescribable you know and (laughs) and I do think that this film does pull it off you see glimpses and parts and nothing is static in terms of how it looks it continuously changes and evolves and I I thought that it did that well uh, in terms of visual effects Mm. and it was all practical as well I think there's only one part that's cgi i guess Mm. so everything else is practical and and just good lighting and Tons of slime, I guess. Just yes, slapping on that KY. <laughs> <laughs> Barrel loads, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one of the special effects I really liked about this film was uh, the pulsating door oh, yes. uh, into into the rift. I guess really, really reminded me of the haunting, obviously, with this door kind of breathing in and out. Yeah. Except this door looked like it was very wet and slimy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> More of that KY again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was pretty effective. Uh, it was, yes. And I think any horror movie where you have a breathing door... It's not a good idea to open it, is it, really? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: But I I also have to say that uh, this film is a bit of a Lovecraftian wet dream in terms (laughs) of references. And to start off with, the title of this film, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, Mm. there is a
0: Lovecraft novel, I believe, called In the Mountains of Madness. So direct reference there. Yes and also At the Mountains of Madness is about a team of Antarctic explorers who discover an unknown life form and then mysteriously disappear so (laughs) this is an area that John Carpenter has covered very well and very famously before. Yes right, the thing. Indeed yeah (laughs) Um, and uh, other references
1: the books that um, Sutter Kane, the novelist in this film that he writes are also direct references to other works that Lovecraft has Um. Written were slight title changes, Mm. but obviously direct references um even i read that some of the lines in this film are taken verbatim from lovecraft's work oh, so right. i think the line that the character linda style says when the opening to the other world opens up and sam neill's character peers into it and she says all these like very profound things about looking at the rift and stuff those are taken from lovecraft as well mm. so
0: Fans of Lovecraft, this is your film, really. (laughs) Yes, it really is. And I think a lot of people point to it as a successful attempt at bringing that kind of cosmic lovecraftian terror to the screen that sense of staring into the void of infinite space and feeling insignificant and Uh and ephemeral in the face of eternity yes Yes, that's that's the kind of thing they're going for and i think it's been done successfully a few times i think annihilation recently the film by alex garland Uh for netflix is a fantastic example of cosmic horror Uh, The Thing, and then there have been some B-movies that are quite fun, like um, The Void, I think it was called. The Void is amazing. I would never say it was a B-movie. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I should check it out. I haven't actually seen that one. But it's a tricky one to pull off, trying to, say, stare into the void and feel insignificant in the face of eternity, and you'll lose your mind, and the old gods will come back and take over the world. and It's a tricky thing to nail. It's actually something that I get from Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick's science fiction movies sometimes. I actually find 2001 and 2010 Mm. terrifying in the same way, that this alien entity is beyond our understanding and the entire finale of 2001 is just mind-bogglingly confusing so yeah i think it's been done before well and i think this one people celebrate as being a very good attempt at that the whole lovecraftian thing Mm, i completely agree also
1: john carpenter um has said that this is actually the third movie of his inverted commas here, <laughs> Apocalypse Trilogy. Mm. Uh, so the first one was The Thing. Uh, the second one uh, was Prince of Darkness. Yes. And this one is the third movie in that sort of triptych of, mm. yeah, cosmic and surreal, I guess. Yeah. As well as being Lovecraftian, this film does have a lot of similarities and pokes at Stephen King as well. Oh. So um, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: the, the writer in this film is very Stephen... King-esque And they even Say like He's more popular Or more successful <laughs> Than Stephen King It's a little Jab there Yeah In Stephen King's books He always refers to Castle Rock That's his kind of World that he Writes all his Characters around mm. And in this film um, Everything is Written around A town called Hobbs End mm. um, So kind of Similar there And I read As well There's a uh, Short story by Stephen King Called Crouch End Yes Which is Has a very similar story and plot to this film. So in that short story, a couple goes to a town and they get taunted by these deformed children... And these children summon some sort of old god as well, and they can't leave this town. They're stranded Then, So, yeah, <laughs> another reference there. So, I mean, for horror junkies of Lovecraft and Stephen King, this is a great sort of homage to that sort of horror thing.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yes, and if you're interested in seeing an adaptation of Stephen King's Crouch and it was actually realized as part of a TV miniseries called Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Oh. Oh. And it's not bad, actually, that series. Right. I'll check it out. The other thing we should say is that this is also widely regarded as John Carpenter's last good film. Right. Okay. <laughs> should we debate that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, John Carpenter,
1: for me, has always been a little bit of a hit and miss kind of guy. Like some of his films, Halloween, Halloween, he did Christine, didn't he? He did, yeah.
0: His only Stephen King adaptation. Yeah.
1: The thing, they're just, for me, just untouchable mm. horror movies. Some of his other films, The Fog, I don't know. It's okay. Mm. It has <laughs> a good atmosphere and uh, that's about it. Similarly, uh, this film, it does have good atmosphere. Mm. I feel like it's got great elements. It's got all the right elements, but they're not very well stitched together. Right. So things kind of happen and it, it kind of suffers from a, a, what I'm going to dub the extra syndrome <laughs> where it just has a whole bunch of just random as crazy shit <laughs> one after the other unexplained and not a huge <laughs> amount of character development. No, I give it to Sam Neill though. He does push the film forward as well as he can with the material he's given, but mm. I don't think the other characters really support him that well, or they're underutilized mm. as well. Like there's some great actors in here, Charlton Heston. Mm. I really like John Glover as yes. well. He's an incredible character actor, mm. but they're underutilized. They're there for two seconds, really. Yes. I don't. I just don't <laughs>
0: understand.
1: What are your thoughts?
0: Yes, the same. I mean, David Warner's in there as well, and he's a wonderful actor has been in this genre ever since The Omen and Tron and up to things like Titanic for James Cameron. He's always been a great actor and he's in a couple of scenes as a psychiatrist. So, yeah, it's a shame that so many of these great actors are wasted. I mean, Sam Neill does have an interesting character to play and he does go on quite an arc. He plays this insurance fraud investigator whose job is to debunk various insurance claims and he's very good at it but as a result of that he's become quite jaded and he has a very low opinion of the human race. I think at one point he says the sooner we're off the planet the better but he also has no creative imagination whatsoever and is determined that reality is singular and is entirely dismissive of this suggestion that Sutter-Kane's fictional work could have any kind of impact on him, this silly horror nonsense, even though he's told when he's dispatched to locate this novelist who's gone crazy and run away with his latest book, Half Finished, that his work is affecting society, that people are changing and that his latest has caused riots in the streets, outside bookstores and so on. But he's entirely dismissive of this. But he goes with Linda Stiles, who is Sutter Kane's editor, to try to find him or debunk the whole insurance claim. And the two of them stumble upon Hobbs End, which is the fictional town in Sutter Kane's work, and reality starts to unravel and he slowly goes crazy, but seems to have more of a deeper insight into the universe and his place in it. So he's got sort of a bit of character development. And, you know, Sam Neill, Sam Neill, he does a great job of it. And he has a lot of fun with it. He's quite acerbic to begin with. I mean, he's not a great guy. He's sort of predatory towards Linda and there's that scene where he's standing over her and putting his arm on the wall as she's waiting for a lift and hey mm. why don't we get out of here and go for some drinks kind of he's a bit of a sleaze bag, <laughs> and he goes from that to insane which is kind of fun to watch but as you say yeah the other characters not so much I mean certainly Linda doesn't have a great deal of development and her behaviour doesn't make a great deal of sense. Maybe you can help me figure this out. Um, uh-huh. They get to the town. Things are a bit weird. They find this amazing church that seems to stand in the middle of nowhere. And then the townsfolk turn up, firing guns into the air. And they're chased off by a herd of dogs. <laughs> and after that, she becomes convinced that they are living inside Sutter Kane's latest novel, which she's read up to a certain point before he disappeared And she now wants to read the ending because she believes that this will help them escape. And then she comes on to John and starts kissing him, even though John's keen to just leave. And then she steals his car keys and runs away. I'm just confused at that point. (laughs) Yeah, I I feel like we'd missed a whole
1: bunch of character development because, yeah, she really switches just instantaneously and... doesn't really make any sense no i mean i found her character quite bland i mean there wasn't a lot to kind of develop i mean she was a very headstrong woman to start off with and she stood down to any of uh, john's advances Mm. yeah that scene where she tries to kiss john was just
0: what is happening right now (laughs) yeah i don't know did i just nod off for 10 minutes what happened (laughs) (laughs) yeah And there's the thing where she comes back after she's been to the church again and Sutter Kane has grabbed her head and shown her his novel and she's gazed into the abyss and lost her mind and she goes back to the hotel that they're staying at and she has this weird scene where she's sort of freaking out and And her line delivery on that I'm really not all that fond of it I mean she's a good actress Julie Carmen, But this line reading is uh, What is it she says It's John I'm losing me (laughs) I can't take it seriously I actually
1: laughed Maybe too much at that Because it sounded almost like John be losing me Like like, like She put on this really Strained voice Uh, (laughs) And it really took me Out of the film (laughs) Yes
0: Me too And John Carpenter has got the camera raised above the set pointing straight down at that point which also sort of enhanced my feeling of bemused detachment <laughs> from the whole affair
1: I also uh, kind of laughed a little bit as well because she's in the bathroom there's a shot like looking at the floor and there's all these tentacles just wiggling around <laughs> underneath the door and John's just staring at that and then the door opens and it's just Linda normal it's like John have a little bit more of a shock <laughs> sort of
0: reaction to that that was screwed up yeah Yeah. it's strange because he hasn't seen an awful lot himself up until that point but then all of a sudden there's tentacles sprouting from everybody when they're in silhouette or behind a door (laughs) yeah and he doesn't seem to be all that fast does he really
1: yeah i mean i think that's one of the things about this film that it kind of suffers from its lack of subtlety Mm -hmm. i find it goes from normal to just batshit crazy just straight away as soon as John reads some of the novel he has crazy nightmares I wish it was kind of eased into it a little bit because it goes from naught to 100 in 10 minutes uh, from watching the film for me, as a viewer, it didn't seem convincing. I wanted a gradual, like, oh, something really is happening. What What's going on? But it mm. was just like, bang, 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 craziness. And so I wasn't really convinced by John slowly going mad, because I would go mad straight away if I was seeing the things he was
0: seeing. <laughs> Yeah, it's too insistent and shrill, I think, the film. It smacks of the TV movie with a small budget that's very eager to get your attention and keep your attention before the next ad break. So it's all bang, bang, flashy, stinger. (laughs) It's all too in your face and desperate to grab your attention rather than building a steady sense of dread and anticipation and the true cosmic horror that you really wanted to get from a film like this. I mean, there's one really good example. There is a scene early on where John is talking to his boss in a restaurant and a guy walks across from the other side of the street. You can see him outside the window with an axe and puts the axe through the window and then threatens John and says, "Do you read Sutter Kane?" and then is shot dead by a policeman. Now, Classic John Carpenter would have handled that scene in a single shot. If you think of something like Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis in the foreground thinking she's bested Michael Myers and then he just slowly sits up in the background. And the camera raises up and he raises up and he's coming towards her slowly. He would have handled that in a single unbroken shot and it would have been terrifying But in this movie, you cut to a close-up of the guy outside the store, so you definitely see him. You get a very loud, insistent music cue, and it keeps cut, 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 until when the thing actually happens, there's just no suspense there whatsoever. It's just too much Mm. of an insistent, attention-grabbing mess. Whereas if that had just been a single shot with Sam Neill talking to this guy, just back and forth, and you just think it's a dialogue scene, and then suddenly you're Eye picks out this guy that's just walking slowly towards the camera from the other side of the street holding an axe. That would have been really disturbing. Yeah. But no. Yeah. I think
1: with this film as well, I don't know whether I'm right with this, but I felt like there was a lack of establishing shots. Right. Uh, So there were always just a lot of close ups all the time. And so when they did move to a different location or when they go to Hobbs End, it didn't feel like they had travelled anywhere. Right. I mean they were in a car and there were lots of like close-up shots but I don't know it felt too almost claustrophobic like I kind of wanted to see where are they now? Mm. Where's that wide angled huge you know pan across the countryside Mm. it made me not convinced that they were in a different location (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh,
0: It's a strange observation I guess. No I think you're absolutely right. I mean this is another film made in Toronto for tax perk reasons so we've been in Toronto for two episodes in a row now (laughs) it's the 90s that happened a lot that's why the X-Files was there for six years it's all filmed there and obviously to hide the fact that they hadn't really changed location they just never went for a wide shot it's a shame because it's the Panavision widescreen photography that John Carpenter loves He's using those lenses and that big wide 235 framing. Mm. But yes, you never get the sense of space that you get in something like the fog with those great shots establishing the lighthouse Mm. it shows the limits of its budget i mean one of the cases where i thought the budget really stuck out was the riots that i mentioned outside (laughs) bookstores i think it looked like it was a riot consisting of about eight people (laughs) (laughs) and they tried desperately with camera movement to hide it but it really did not look particularly apocalyptic Mm.
1: I mean, in terms of of locations, I found the insane asylum uh, at the start of the film a really Compelling location. Mm. Uh, Apparently, I I read it was actually a water filtration plant in the beaches area of Toronto. So not an insane asylum, but it it was the kind of insane asylum I wished they'd had in Disturbing Behavior. That really stark, Mm. white, sterile, clinical. Uh, Also, how it was shot in this film uh with lots of uh, like you said like kind of wide-angled lenses it made it look huge and it had this kind of it was a lot of low-angled shots almost looked very terry gilliam-esque mm. and uh um, almost tim Burton looking like very kind of wacky fun house vibe to it and mm. and it, it really <laughs> kind of set the tone of the film but then it just um
0: <laughs> then the rest of the film started <laughs> Yes Well I think the other location that's a standout is the church The yes. church is incredible Yes And that was quite a find It's this sort of obsidian spired building That seems to stand in the middle of nowhere And it looks incredibly odd Privately owned, apparently. And in Sean Clark's Horrors, Hallowed Grounds, I don't know if you've ever seen that, he does no. this show where he visits locations of horror movies to see what they look like now. Um, unfortunately, now this church is no longer isolated and standing in the middle of nowhere. It's now surrounded by condos on all four sides. Oh, <laughs> so oh no. It's <laughs> such a shame. But, yeah, I mean, it's an incredible visual And it ties into this sense of churches being isolated from the rest of the world. And it's something that John Carpenter also did in Prince of Darkness, which has this dilapidated church in the middle of a rundown neighborhood surrounded by possessed homeless people. So it's it's all part of that kind of Gothic tradition. I
1: think. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sinister looking church. Um, mm. It almost looks Russian. It's very yeah. out of place. And it does hold a lot of mystery to it. I wish they kind of utilised it a little bit more, though.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sort of stood outside it a couple of times. And then there was a dog attack. And then they went home. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I kind of laughed at the dogs as well. Because I, I know Doberman, the breed of dog, they're pretty ferocious. But they look kind of small. <laughs> and so when they were running away from these kind of not even waist-high dogs, it, it looked a
0: little bit... Um, come on, people. It's not scary. <laughs> no, and it's shot in slow motion. So it just, I don't know, it doesn't. it's just not scary, is it? I mean, this is the thing that we need to address. Is this movie actually frightening and... I would say no. Mm. I don't remember being particularly disturbed by it. No. I mean, there are some cheap jump scares. There's a hand on Linda's back as she's walking through the black church. Yes. There's Linda jumping full speed at John through the open hotel door, which is a jump that makes no sense whatsoever because he really should be able to see her sprinting across the hallway, frankly, (laughs) the speed that she hits him at midair.
1: Yeah, and the door looks like it's made out of...
0: (laughs) Like crackers or something, it completely just (laughs) crumbles. It's a ridiculous shot, and they're always accompanied by massive stingers on the soundtrack. And Mm. so, you know, there's cheesy jump scares, there's not really a great sense of dread or atmosphere built up over the thing, and the moments when you actually see something terrifying. Some of them are good, but I mean, it's not all that terrifying, is it really? I mean, certainly Mrs. Pickman in her tentacled phase is not particularly terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I I thought it was a
1: little bit too quick as well. Like he kind of just goes downstairs. He sees a bunch of, tentacles squiggling around and he goes oh well I'm not going there
0: (laughs) 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 yeah which is a shame because Mrs Pickman who is the kindly old lady that runs the hotel that they're staying at she's kind of interesting she behaves sort of slightly odd and then on one occasion the camera pans down to reveal that behind the counter her husband presumably is naked on the floor and handcuffed to her ankle yeah, you think what the hell is going on here? But it's never really explained. No, and then later you see her as this tentacled thing monster axing her husband to bits. I think, mm, but it's yeah. a not terribly convincing miniature. So
1: yeah, I kind of wish it spent more time in Hobbs End, uh, the town, but as normal Hobbs End rather than just straight to Batch it Crazy. Yeah, uh, and and spent more time kind of developing yeah mrs pickman as a character as it's just like a, a normal old lady and then suddenly some weird stuff starts happening and easing into it rather than just like mm. wow but
0: naked man handcuffed to her <laughs> on the floor <laughs> and no explanation yeah it's a shame it doesn't really build up any sense of mystery mm. or horror or dread. Mm. And Sutter Kane isn't all that terrifying either, I don't think. I mean, Jurgen Prochnow is a wonderful, intense and formidable actor, but he's not in very many scenes and he doesn't really do much apart from spout grand Lovecraftian speeches. Yeah. And that's it
1: yeah yeah I, I found he was introduced almost too late in the film as well mm. they i mean they always talked about Kane, but i kind of wanted something to visualize and when he was introduced it was very quick and um and then he was gone and then uh, mm. the last Act of the film, he's not even really in it, so...
0: Yeah, Um, which is a shame, because he could have been this, like, Faustian figure who owes his success to his deal with the nameless evil that he can no longer contain or control. But that isn't really explored in any way. He's just, yeah, says a few profound things and then disappears into the void, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like a lot of this film was... They'd made these amazing visual effects and monsters and Kane. The back of his head is this weird face creature that's kind of hemorrhaging out of his head. But they didn't really have any reason to have these things. So they, <laughs> it was just a series of... Here's Something crazy, followed by, here's something even crazier. And I guess it leads back to your your comment before about Lovecraftian horror, not really having any plot.
0: No. And
1: I felt like there wasn't a huge amount of plot with this film.
0: No, I mean, literally your synopsis sort of covers it. They go to this town, weird things happen, John goes insane, end of story. (laughs) I think there's hints around the edges that the world has ended and that he's safer inside his insane asylum. But other than that, I'm not really sure what the plot was. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So Dan, what trivia has tentacled its way out of the void from In the Mouth of Madness? Well, this is a very
1: interesting film, isn't it? There is one scene... Where Styles swallows the car keys uh, when uh, John is is trying to escape this town. So he's in the car. He goes to turn the car on, but Styles has the keys in her hands, and then she swallows them. (laughs) And it's not just one key; it's it's a handful of (laughs) keys. Um, (laughs) But those car keys apparently were made from pasta, so uh, I guess a little
0: bit easier Uh. to swallow than a chunk of steel. <laughs> Still uncooked couldn't have been nice <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether they were cooked or uncooked, but uh pasta none- and <laughs> If I'm allowed to, I thought I'd have some random trivia. Yeah, of course. So this film features early appearances from two men that would go on to become much bigger stars. Uh, you have Kevin Zegers, along with his sister Katie Zegers, as one of the group of sort of demon children that keep chasing uh-huh. a dog around in the movie. Yes. Yes, yeah, so you've got Kevin Ziegers there, and Kevin went on to be in Mortal Instruments, City of Bones and the Dawn of the Dead remake. And I know him... From Transamerica, where he played a hustler, and I thought he was really good in that. Wow. And it also features a very young Hayden Christensen as Paperboy. What an entrance. (laughs) And he, of course, became famous or infamous later on for being in the Star Wars prequels as a sand-hating Anakin Skywalker. (laughs) I mean, everyone hates sand, though. Let's be honest. It gets everywhere. It's rough. It gets in your pants, yes. (laughs) And that's our random trivia. Yes.
1: In terms of trying to induce dread, uh, which this film doesn't do, Mm. I do feel like the score... Has a lot to
0: do with that. Yes, it's a rock score. It's John Carpenter, as always, but this time he's paired with Jim Lang, who is not someone that I'm familiar with. Neither. But this is a score that is very much driven by Carpenter's rock sensibilities. So it's a very guitar heavy score. John Carpenter was, of course, in a band called the Coupe de Villes at one point. I'm pretty good singer, actually, if you've ever heard the theme tune from Big Trouble in Little China. It's pretty good. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what that's doing here. I mean, I'm all for different types of score. But yeah, I'm not really sure what the light rock from 1990 is doing on this soundtrack. (laughs) It was
1: very kind of reminiscent of of early Metallica to me, like Into the Sandman, that sort of stuff. So kind of that sort of cheesy metal rock phase. Mm. There were a lot of synth pads sprinkled in there, very Carpenter-esque pads. But I felt like they were just, as you've said before, just him just leaning on a synth keyboard and calling it a day, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Like nothing too memorable It was a lot of just like
0: Oh here's a sustained note And here's another sustained note (laughs) Yeah and it's not the synthesizers that I love I love his early stuff Like The Fog and Halloween And Escape from New York Where the synths are analogue synths And they sound like synths So he's creating different textures And interesting soundscapes With all of these repetitive minimalist patterns That are really eerie and disturbing but have a an energy that drives the movie forward. Whereas this is this sort of paddy, sample-based, sounds sort of like a TV movie, mm. fake orchestral woodwind sounds. and <laughs> Oh, I hate that stuff. I like synths to sound like synths. Uh-huh. And I like an orchestra to sound like an orchestra. And I like the two to be combined in inventive ways. I do not like... 90s sample based synthesizers trying to sound like an orchestra yeah i think they sound tacky
1: yeah i completely agree with you um shall we talk about the ending of this film Mm -hmm. Uh, this was a a bit of a deal breaker for me (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) So the whole point of this movie is, uh, apart from obviously the Lovecraft in horror and the, the entity and another dimension kind of controlling our dimension, the crux of this film is the fact that Sutter Kane was writing a novel that was coming true. Mm-hmm. So all the characters in his novel, in the Hobbs End, were being realized as real people and they were chained to their fate as written characters. Mm. Um, so you, you have a, the guy in the bar and he blows his brains out with a shotgun and he even says, like, I, this is how I'm written or something like that. So that's a really cool aspect mm. and then you have Sutter Kane himself tearing his face apart like it's a page from a novel and then you, you see a whole image and it's just pages from a novel. You can see the text on on, on the paper tears. Mm. I thought that was kind of a, a bit of a cop out for me. I don't know. It reminded me of, of kids' movies where, like, if you believe in fairies, they come true kind of thing. If you believe in Sutter <laughs> Cane's horrors, they come true. And it was a little bit... Oh, it's a bit of a childish way of doing it. And and the fact that, in the end, John escapes from the insane asylum. Or not really escapes, he just walks out because everyone's got nuts. <laughs> and he, he goes to the theatre um, and he manages to actually pour himself a whole punnet of popcorn <laughs> and he walks down the aisle with this huge bucket of popcorn and he sits down and he watches the movie and the movie he watches is the movie we've just watched yes and he is an actor in this movie so it's very meta and he starts laughing <laughs> and i don't know <laughs> just i just found it like oh no what has this movie become?
0: Yes. It's nearly as bad as the it's all a dream, but worse than that, it's all a movie. And it's the movie you've been watching, and it just disappears up its own backside. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mention children's family films, because one of the things it reminded me of, having just done a video essay on it, is the never-ending story. Right. So you have... Yes. There's all this talk of people who have been infected with Sutter Cain's madness have these sort of double-pupiled eyes and they lean in and say, have you read Sutter Cain? And I can see and he sees you. There are these layers of audiences and the performer and the viewer and the text and the reader, very much like The NeverEnding Story. I mean, one of the things I always loved about The NeverEnding Story is that scene where... The Empress is talking to Atreyu about the fact that they have managed to find a human child because he's been reading the story all the way along. But she also talks about the fact that people have been watching him. So you in the audience realise that she's actually staring directly out at you and she's referring to you and that you are a part of this, which is really spooky. And even as a child, I recognised it and the hairs went up on the back of my neck. In this movie, it hints at these things, and it ends with Sam Neill laughing at himself in a movie theatre, and then the credits roll. But it doesn't involve you as a viewer, Mm. I don't feel. It sort of collapses in on itself. It sort of becomes its own self-referential vortex and then just ends. Mm. I don't feel threatened by it. I don't feel involved in it in any way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish if they had him be in the movie. Shouldn't they have like little like glimpses of like the camera crew, or you know, a cable or a, a microphone or something? You know, something to hint at it. Because when they finally reveal that, you just think that they just run out of ideas. Are they just using like footage they have already used? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I compare it to, uh, I don't know whether you've seen uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire. Right. Because um, that has a similar premise in terms of, is this a movie or is this real life? Mm. The characters go through a scene thinking that this is real life and then you hear a cut and then it pans out and there's a camera crew and she's really confused like, oh shit, I was in a scene, I didn't realize it. Mm. Uh, but there wasn't any of that. So when you, you have that final reveal, you it doesn't mean anything.
0: Mm. No. I had no reaction. <laughs> no. It just felt like a shaggy dog story and the rug had been pulled out from under you, really. It's mm. it's a shame because I have had that experience before, even reading. There was a novel by Stephen King and Peter Straub called Black House, and I had a very unpleasant time reading it because I felt as though my mind was coming apart while I was reading it. It's really a disturbing book in that right. sense. And if you'd managed to conjure that feeling in... In the Mouth of Madness, if the audience felt as though they were losing their minds as they were watching it, that really would be something, I think. Mm. And I think there have been films that have achieved that. I mean, Lynch is great at that kind of thing. Yes, this doesn't do that
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I do think this film has all the elements of a great film But they're just not stitched together well And there's no sense of going somewhere It just seems to be just bang, 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 bang bang, The end, laughing credits Yes (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I can't really put my finger on what it really needs to be a great film But
0: uh, it just doesn't quite get there No, it doesn't. And yet it's on the cusp of saying something really interesting about the relationship between reality and fantasy and how reality is a delusion agreed upon by the majority, and if the majority becomes the minority, then reality changes. Sutter Kane says, when people begin to lose their ability to know the difference between fantasy and reality, the old ones can begin their journey back, and the more people who believe the faster the journey. Hmm. So this sense of the world could fall apart if enough people lose their grip And I think this could make the film more relevant than ever when you think of filter bubbles and fake news and echo chambers and the rise of large groups of people who've lost their grip on reality like anti-vaxxers and flat earthers. There's this real sense that it could be a relevant and poignant film, but the film just doesn't seem to be interested in doing that. It's just interested in taking cheap pot shots at things and smirking. So, for example, when it's talking about... Somebody says, "Why are we worried about Sutter Kane taking over the world?" Half the world doesn't even read books, and Charlton Heston leans in conspirationally and says, "Ah, but there's a movie." <laughs> so, for the illiterate out there, there's a movie adaptation coming along, and that seems to be the note that the movie ends on. And it's, it's, you know, it's not even as effective as the ending of Halloween three where the end of the world is happening with a television transmission and it cuts to the credits with certain doom being hinted at. And its it doesn't even manage that because Sam Neill's just laughing uncontrollably. So it just feels as though it's poking fun lightly at these things rather than having the substance and determination to establish a mood or say anything really profound. Mm,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's it. Uh, it's just... A lot of mixed tone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the ending should have been terrifying and mm. a sense of dread, but no, it's, it's Sam laughing. It
0: is. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good laugh. It is. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobli Award. So it's that time where we nominate our favourite or least favourite parts of the movie in a bunch of completely spurious categories. Dan, kicking off with favourite quote, what is your favourite quote from In the Mouth of Madness? Mm, Well, this movie actually has a lot of really good quotes. Mm.
1: Uh, There are lots of good one-liners, lots of good exchanges. I had to choose one, uh, but this one is an exchange between John and Sutter Kane. I think this is in, in kind of one of the crux moments of the film. So John says, I'm not a piece of fiction. And then Kane replies, I think, therefore you are. And wow, Ooh. I don't know,
0: a very, very profound <laughs> statement there. It is, yes, and speaks to the layers of fiction and text at play in this film. Yeah, exactly. For me, it was a very simple phrase, but I thought it encapsulates the theme of the film And the way that the film could be related to uh, our current experience of the world. And it comes from one of the torch-wielding townspeople, Simon, when he says to John, reality is not what it used to be. Mm, Right. Mm, Which can be read in a number of different ways, so I quite like it. On to
1: the next category, most 90s moments, Conrad.
0: I think the most 90s thing about this film is its attitude towards smoking. So, in the 80s, you had people smoking all the time, and it didn't matter. They'd be smoking on the toilet when they're preparing food, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. In the 90s, they would sometimes do the same, but it would always be commented on, and people would object to it. Yeah, it was always a problem. So Ah. I think the fact that John smokes, but he's always being told off for doing it. And I think that was specifically a 90s thing. And then, of course, we get into the noughties and nobody smokes ever again.
1: That's actually really interesting. I've never really thought about it in the 90s, but it's true. Everyone always says in films, you can't smoke in here or put that out.
0: <laughs> or they smoke because it's, it's to show that they're upset or something. They either drink or smoke. Or in The Vanishing, he does both, of course. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. That's true. I mean, my most 90s thing about this film is, um, I don't know why, but a lot of kind of early to mid 90s films look very drab. And this film just looked very <laughs> drab. Like lots of shades of grey and beige everywhere. <laughs> and, and everyone seems to be wearing just oversized, grey, double-breasted um, suit jackets as well. It's like they're, they're all kids wearing their
0: dad's suits <laughs> or something. Yeah, it's weird. I guess after the 80s, when everything was neon, it, it's really quite a sharp contrast, isn't it? Yeah, 90s. yeah. Well, speaking of clothes, how about uh, hair and costume, our category for that? Did you have a favourite piece of wardrobe or styling for this movie? As I mentioned,
1: everything looked a little bit drab and boring. So uh, my Mm. favourite sort of character costume was, uh, I think his name was Saperstein. He's uh, the head Mm. doctor, uh, psychiatrist at the asylum. So he's wearing... Uh, just white, everything uh, White lab coat, uh, white shirt But he's wearing a very fetching bow tie He just looks
0: very <laughs> dapper in
1: the uh, mental asylum
0: Amongst yeah. the crazy people Yeah, and he seems to enjoy his job as well, doesn't he? Which is great <laughs> Yeah, he does have a very chipper sort of attitude towards it And yours, Connor? Connor? Um, mine was definitely Linda Stiles' white silky pantsuit. Especially the trousers, oh. which look for all the world like clown trousers because they're so baggy and ill-fitting. Yeah. Yes. Um, they really don't do anything for her. She looks awful in them. <laughs> and she tops it off with a white cardigan. And just in case that wasn't enough white, she then has a full-length knitted white cardigan overcoat and some yeah. white pearls. Which I can just see being the perfect thing to wear when you're about to go into the wilds of America to look for a town that doesn't exist. I know. She looked like she was plucked straight from Days of Our Lives or something. Yeah, exactly. She looks awful, bless her. But she does stick out, so kudos for that, I suppose. Sure, sure. How about
1: a favourite scene? I, I just like all the scenes with special effects, really. <laughs> Anything with tentacle creatures or deformed people. I mean, I guess to pick one, I did really like the Sutter Kane scene where
0: he tears his face apart like a page from a, a newspaper or something. Mm.
1: It's pretty, pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that's a very early industrial light and magic computer graphic effect. So. Oh, is it? Yeah, quite huh. cool. Yeah, quite groundbreaking for its time, I think. Great. And what was yours, Conrad? Favourite scene? I think mine's probably the night driving scene where Linda is taken over the wheel and John's asleep and she keeps passing this cyclist, which is a bit of a shock in the middle of the night. Yeah. (laughs) But the first time she passes him, he's a teenager wearing double denim on a bicycle with playing cards in the spokes And a moment later, she passes him again. But this time he's an ancient old man with a mane of white hair illuminated in the headlights. And he, for all the world, looks like John Carpenter does now, which I think is really (laughs) freaky. But uh, yeah, she's freaked out and she wakes John up and he doesn't care and goes back to sleep and then after she consults a map and she puts the map down all of a sudden she runs over the bicyclist so she sort of passes him again but this time she mows him down and she runs back after she stops the car to see if he's okay and this kid in old age makeup says i can't get out he won't let me out so he's obviously trying to escape the town and just keeps looping and it's just getting older and older and i mm. found the whole thing with the looping and the night driving and the fact that she's alone experiencing it and john doesn't believe her i thought she thought it was quite creepy mm. i thought so as well i mean
1: especially because it's so dark like you can't see anything apart from the lines on the road and the cyclists coming mm. past also good use of sound as well the um, sort of Tick, tick 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 of the the card in the in the spokes of the bicycle. Yeah, it, it was a very well well executed scene.
0: Yeah, it's my favorite.
1: <laughs> All right, so next
0: category, uh, most cliché horror moments. Uh, For me, another loop. It's the Russian doll of it's all a dream, John wakes up (laughs) moments, which (laughs) is just ridiculous. It's like inception level dreaming. He's three layers down in this nightmare and he keeps waking up and experiencing something else and going back to sleep again. So yeah, I thought that was probably mine. Although there was another one of my favourites, which is uh, tearing apart shreds of paper, actually this time from book covers, to form a clue in this case was a map, which we saw in the hole and yeah, yeah feels yeah. very old and tired.
1: <laughs> yeah, it really does. And, and just ridiculously complicated as well. Like, how do you figure that out? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't know how he spotted it. It's just crazy. How about you? What did you think?
1: Well, actually, mine was the multiple times of waking up from a nightmare and then waking up again and uh... then waking up. The, that sort of double scare <laughs> thing where he wakes up and then he looks beside him and there's the deformed cop from the nightmare beside him and he wakes up again it's just like oh how many times have I seen this how many times
0: <laughs> yeah it's a bit tired isn't it yeah okay well let's look for some originality in effects did you have a favourite effect in this movie
1: um I've already mentioned it the, the Sutter kane uh scene where he rips his face uh-huh. apart like it's paper it's it's just so cool because it's it's a 3D scene and then it suddenly becomes 2D, and then yeah. uh, he rips his face apart, and then it kind of opens up like a flower, but it's it's like a hole in a in a page in a book, and you can see the writing on the tears as well. It's just mm. I just expected him to be pulled into the void by tentacles, just you know the normal thing. But uh, that was yeah. <laughs> Very well done.
0: Yeah, it's interesting as a visual and as a visual representation of what the film's going for too. It's a good one. I like it. Mm. And what was yours, Conrad? Um, Mine is the horde of Lovecraftian horrors spilling down the corridor towards John from the abyss. Ah, yes. As we've said before, visualising Lovecraft is difficult because... It's all about the unnameable and you just talk about it. You can't see it because it's indescribable. And uh, you think it's going to be a cop-out because Linda's sort of describing it from a book while John reacts, staring into the void. But you do actually get to see the monsters. And it's really well done because it's a 20-foot-wide sculpture with various puppets on it and three guys in suits running in front of it. And you only see it sort of out of focus a couple of times. And I think it racks focus to the monsters briefly. And uh-huh. just for that one second, they look really freaky. Mm. So mm. I really enjoyed that. I thought it was good. I mean, I loved the special
1: effects in this film. Like all practical effects, uh, apart from the, the tearing one. But yeah, mm. just really well utilised. And the camera didn't stay on them too long to make them look completely fabricated
0: yeah but it makes you laugh because you think a 20 foot wide sculpture and three full body suits and they're running down this corridor under hot lights over and over again for something that just blink and you'll miss it (laughs) yeah yeah that's just the movies all over i guess (laughs) the joy of movie making i guess and what about sound did you have a favorite sound effect um, I
1: had a sound effect that just annoyed the crap out of me. So um, every time they had a, a jump scare where a monster would appear out of nowhere or, or someone would touch someone's shoulder with their arm or something, there was a cat screech <laughs> for some reason. What, what appeared to be a cat screech. So just that like, meow every time, every time. And it just got very
0: irritating and annoying very quickly. I know exactly the one that you're talking about. And yes, it's very tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> and Conrad, what was your favourite sound effect? Um, I'm afraid it's least favourite again. It's the crappy punch sound effects when Linda and John are confronting each other on the street in front of the mob of torch-bearing townspeople. Uh, so Linda yeah. punches him and he punches her back. And it just sounds like they had a CD of punches <laughs> and they just put on punch a and punch b and just left them there dry sticking out of the soundtrack like a sore thumb and they're horrible <laughs> yeah yeah i, I know those sounds. uh <laughs> final category uh funniest scene i didn't find any scene particularly funny but john does have a couple of funny quotes after he finds out that the axe man that assaulted him and his boss on the street was Sutter Kane's agent and John says you'd think the guy who outsells Stephen King could find better representation <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Neill delivers it so well <laughs> he's hilarious in this movie he's so Yeah good. I know my funniest scene was a uh, just
1: really short but just I don't know I found it hilarious so John is trying to escape this town. He's been confronted by this mob of just deformed townspeople and then Mm. a guy wielding an axe runs up to him and you think oh something's gonna happen and then the the guy with the axe just says fuck you and (laughs) just runs off. (laughs)
0: It's like what was the point of that? Maybe it was supposed to be a stunt, but they didn't have the money or the time or something. (laughs) Unexplainable, but hilarious nonetheless. (laughs) And that's our Mooblies. Indeed.
1: listeners we are back to give a final verdict to In the Mouth of Madness should this movie be liberated to inspire mass hysteria and axe wielding among the general populace or should it be torn apart like a cheap paperback novel and launched into the Lovecraftian abyss to be lost forever (laughs) Conrad
0: what's your verdict Oh, I think it's fairly obvious from the tenor of the discussion (laughs) what my final verdict is. I didn't like this movie the first time I watched it. I came back to it and it hasn't really improved in my eyes, which happens a lot with John Carpenter. Sometimes, you know, The Thing was famously a complete disaster when it was released and so was Big Trouble in Little China. And since then, It's become a cult classic or a stone-cold masterpiece. (laughs) In the Mouth of Madness, I don't think so. There are some interesting things about it. I think there are some moments, there are some shots, there are some scenes, there are lots of ideas in there that are interesting. It's probably one of the most effective attempts to do the whole cosmic Lovecraftian horror. But there's no sense of dread, there's no sense of suspense, there's no engagement with the characters And as an apocalyptic tale of terror, I wasn't particularly terrorised or engaged, to be honest. And I think it isn't Carpenter's last great movie. I think his last great movie was probably They Live or Prince of Darkness. And this one is just as forgettable as his others. So (laughs) I would tear up this pulpy novel and shove it back behind the glistening, bulging door, <laughs> How about you? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'd watched this a few years ago,
1: and I remember loving this film. I remember really, really enjoying really? it. Um, But I think I was going through a very dark, Lovecraftian Clive Barker I want the world to end, kind of phase <laughs> in terms of cinema, not not my life. Um, so I think it was right up my alley at the time, and as mm. as a more kind of matured cinema lover, I feel like it does not hold up. <laughs> as I've said, no. there are so many elements of the film that I feel could have worked, but they just don't they really don't it has just been haphazardly stitched together in this film and like you've said as well it does really suffer from that is this a tv movie kind of vibe it it just Mm. doesn't have that grand cinema experience and you never really feel that immersed in the story and the characters. Mm. I do have to mention this film, if you are a lover of Lovecraft and cosmic horror and you love seeing some pretty crazy special effects in terms of monsters and Mm. creatures and tentacles. Lots of tentacles. Uh this is your film. You will love this film. If you really want to sit down and watch a movie that engages you just so this is not your film so I, I, I think no. listeners out there you have the possibility of watching a
0: great film approach
1: with caution
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> yes
0: so what would your final verdict be? yeah well you know I'm I'm just going to throw it behind the, the bulging glistening door <laughs> uh, and be lost forever
1: okay off you go well actually I, I guess I should really tear this door open like a, a paperback novel hang on oh, of course He wrote me this way. Okay, get in there. And, uh, I guess I have to glue this back up now. (laughs) I'll do that later. (laughs) All right, I'm back. (laughs) Good job. Ah, yes, another verdict
0: delivered. So, I guess, uh, Conrad, what are we doing next episode? Well, next time we're actually delving into the strange realms of Western horror with a film entitled... Ravenous. Oh, I don't think I've heard mm. of this film. No, me neither. It's a 1999 film directed by Antonia Bird and starring Australia's own Guy Pearce. Mmm, some more Australian representation. I love it. And it wasn't even suggested to us by an Australian. It was suggested by our guest... will be joining us next time very excited about that it's our first ever returning guest just can't get enough of us (laughs) yeah repeat visitor and if you can't get enough of us then why not check us out on our social media channels we're on everything as movie oubliette twitter instagram facebook and if you want to email us we are movie.oubliette
1: at gmail.com we love hearing whatever you want to say about all of our films that we've discussed or films that you want us to discuss we can add it to the oubliette roulette mm, we love spinning that thing and also please <laughs> rate and review us on apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you're using spotify now mm. give us five stars or however our spotify is
0: rating <laughs> podcast i don't know (laughs) we've got nothing on spotify so if you want to be the first person to break (laughs) our cherry on there that'd be great (laughs) yes please (sighs) thanks for joining us and goodbye for now goodbye do you read sutter kane